Welcome to the Hospital Finance Podcast, your go-to source for information and insights that can help you stay ahead of the challenges impacting healthcare finance. And now, the host of the Hospital Finance Podcast, Kelly Wisness. Hi, this is Kelly Wisness. Welcome back to the award-winning Hospital Finance Podcast. We're pleased to welcome back Dr. David L. Feldman, Chief Medical Officer for the Doctors Company and TDC Group. In addition, he is Senior Vice President and Chief Medical Officer at Healthcare Risk Advisors, or HRA, a strategic business unit of TDC Group. Previously, Dr. Feldman was Vice President for Patient Safety, Vice President of Perioperative Services, and Vice Chairman of the Department of Surgery at Mymenides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. Under his leadership, HRA provides resources and a collaborative environment designed to minimize claims and lower premiums for HRA clients by preventing patient harm, enhancing teamwork and communication, and improving documentation. Dr. Fellman currently serves on the steering committee of the American College of Surgeons for retraining and retooling of practicing surgeons. Dr. Fellman received a Bachelor of Arts degree and Doctor of Medicine degree from Duke University completed training in general surgery at the Roosevelt Hospital, now Mount Sinai West, and plastic surgery at Duke University Medical Center. He earned a Master of Business Administration degree from New York University. He's back to continue our discussion around why a culture of patient safety matters. In part one of our discussion, we laid out the problem. In today's part two, we will dig into what we do about it. Thank you for joining us again, Dr. Feldman. Thanks so much, Kelly, for having me back. Appreciate it. Hey, it's great to have you back. And today we're going to jump right into it again. We're, we're looking at what would be the economic benefits of establishing wide-ranging patient safety measures? Well, some, some of this is sort of obvious, Kelly. Some of it, uh, maybe not so much. There's this constant um, tension that those of us in patient safety feel about how we prove to finance people that actually improving quality reduces costs. And part of that is um, the timing. So typically, uh, some of the projects that we get involved with take a while to show their results. We talked in our in our last uh, podcast about um, the fact that there's a, there's a time delay, and that culture change takes a while in healthcare, in particular. And and finance people don't really have have the wherewithal, the timing to really to wait so long for this. Um, So that's a very tricky thing to do. Uh, I think there's a couple of things to keep in mind. One, it's incumbent upon us who work in this field to try and demonstrate these things, even if it's a number of years later. Um, And our podcast is timely because we literally just released an article on the Journal of the American College of Surgeons uh, that looks at a number of years of um, reduction in retained surgical items, that is leaving things in people during surgery, which is uh, one of those safety events that we really that really should never happen. And what we did to try and reduce that was to do two things. One, training teams, OR teams, to work with each other better, communicate better so that these things wouldn't happen. And then two, using a technology that actually puts a chip in the sponges so that at the end of the operation, in addition to the typical a traditional way of, of preventing uh, leaving things to people, that is by counting both the sponges, instruments, the needles, all those things. But in addition, uh, for those of the soft goods that we call them, the sponges, the lap pads, the towels and so forth, had little chips in them, and you wave this wand over the patient and it will detect if there's a chip in the patient. So the team training and the radio frequency together, um, we looked over literally a, a 10-year period, almost a million operations across all of our institutions here in New York, 
and a 50% reduction in the number of retained surgical items. And of course, along with that, a reduction in the number of lawsuits. Now, those are costly things to happen. You would, as we mentioned in the last episode, you don't get paid for that when that happens. There's additional care. There may be a lawsuit, which is also expensive. But it took us a long time to do this. So I think we need to try and, number one, make sure that we let people know that this takes a while. And number two, do the research so we have the data to show people uh, that it was worth spending the money. These chips obviously cost more. You have to buy chips with sponges in it, and there's a cost to that. Uh, I don't think anybody would argue that, that at this point that that cost is worth it. But there are still places that don't have these kinds of things, and I think this is a help in convincing them. The other thing that I would mention that I think is really um, interesting and uh, something that I think is a, a helpful way to engage with our finance uh, folks, I really have been impressed with the, the financial folks that work in hospitals, um, especially in many of the hospitals that I work in where so much of the income is really out of our control. It's Medicare and Medicaid, and those fee schedules are determined, obviously, by the states and the federal government. Uh, they change from year to year. Uh, to the fact that a finance uh, expert would work in a hospital, which is really a difficult place to be, to me, uh, means that they really are interested in doing their part to improve patient care, which I really think is great. And, and all of these um, folks that I've worked with to a person have really been terrific and very engaged. Why not bring them into some of these clinical situations? When things go wrong in a hospital, we often do what's called a root cause analysis. It's a pretty intensive review of what happened. Why not invite your finance folks to those meetings and have them listen to what went on in this particular operation, or in this case? And now why would that be? Because invariably, at the end of this analysis, we usually develop what's called a corrective action plan. That is, what are we going to do to prevent this from happening again? And often that requires resources. It requires money. Um, if you leave a sponge in something, in somebody, someone might say, well, why don't we put the chips in the sponges? Well, who's going to pay for that? So a few weeks later, when the folks who are assigned to address these corrective actions go back to talk to the, the finance department, wouldn't it be nice if they were sitting in that room with you and hearing about this case? I think it makes a compelling argument for them, perhaps direct some of the resources to, to help with these things, to help prevent them. So I think there's generally a way to establish. It's not easy. Uh, nobody said it's easy. But I think some of the, those are some of the things that I would be focused on or suggest people focus on to get the attention of financial folks that really hold the strings and, and the funds to make some of this happen. Those are some really great ideas, Dr. Feldman. Would this have a wider impact on patient care generally? Well, I think so. I think the, um, the general feeling is that if you can improve patient care, if you can reduce the number of things that go wrong, people are, people are going to be much more satisfied with the system. They're more likely to engage with the healthcare system. There are a lot of a lot of patients are afraid to come to a hospital, to see a doctor, to have an operation because they're af they hear stories from, from friends and family about when things go wrong. To know that we've reduced the likelihood of these, of these things happening, I think makes it more likely for them to seek care, to have their routine colonoscopies, mammograms, those kinds of things. And then there's this whole tension between the current system, most of the current system, which is a fee-for-service system. So we pay healthcare providers based on what, what they're doing. And unfortunately, um, when there's a, uh, an adverse event, when something goes wrong, most of the time, not always, but most of the time, you get paid for taking care of that patient more, which is sort of incentive-wise a little bit perverse. It's interesting, I'm a plastic surgeon and doing cosmetic surgery, which is not reimbursed by insurance, patients pay for this. 
we would typically tell a patient, uh, I would typically tell a patient that anything related to their cosmetic surgery afterwards, I would not charge them for. I'm making a commitment to get them where they want to be, even if things unexpectedly go wrong. Now, there are certain fees I wouldn't have control over, additional surgery fees or anesthesia fees, but I would not charge them more. So it wasn't quite a guarantee. I guess you'd call it more of a warranty. Um, and that's what happens in a value-based care system. You get paid for uh, delivering quality care. Um, so in, in my cosmetic surgery example, um, if I do a successful tummy tuck, let's say, um, and I don't have to do treat any complications, it's less, I don't have the additional work, the patient's happy, it's a win-win. Value-based care uh, has the same sort of ideas that doctors and nurses and other healthcare providers get paid for keeping patients healthy. Uh, and that, I think, is something we're all sort of hoping to head towards, but it's, it's not so easy. And it, it is, it is cost um, efficient. If you think about it, um, if you're incentivizing people to deliver higher quality care. So true. Yes. Um, what is the most important step that healthcare can take to maximize patient safety? Well, we talked about this uh, last time. I think those of us in the um, responsible for patient safety. And this is, there's a range here. Um, I've spent a lot of time with big hospitals, small hospitals, and some large groups, but a lot of healthcare is delivered in small places, small practices. Uh, that's still the majority of, of healthcare in this country is not in a hospital. It's outside a hospital. And more and more people are pushing that because nobody wants to be in a hospital. Um, so assessing where you are in those those four elements we talked about last time, right? Developing a culture of respect so you can start getting the folks involved with delivering care to talk to each other and, and be upfront with each other, and then focusing on getting people to work in teams together. And even, even in an office, we, uh, we did a, an interesting um, video of this a number of years ago here at, at Healthcare Risk Advisors to, to see what team training looks like in an office setting where you might only have a handful of folks, a receptionist, maybe a nurse, a medical assistant, maybe a advanced practice clinician like a PA or a nurse practitioner and a physician, maybe one or two physicians. How does that team work together? Do they um, huddle at the beginning of the day to plan what the day's events are going to be like? Do they have a debrief at the end of the day? Do they talk about how they can do things better? Now, that's a really important way for even a small team to get engaged. And you can take those principles all the way up to large institutions where the teams are even bigger. And then what we talked about last time, the human factors side of this thing. Have you done that? Have you thought about ways that you can use technology, use system fixes to make it easier and less easier to do the right thing and less likely for there to be a problem? So here's an example. As a surgeon, I, I tend to use surgical examples. Um, the typical patient coming to a doctor's office say, has a problem with their knee, they need, uh, they've tried some physical therapy and so forth, and the orthopedic surgeon feels like the patient needs to have an arthroscopy, an outpatient procedure to, uh, to correct whatever they, they believe is wrong. Uh, so they have the conversation with the patient, the patient walks out of the examining room, and then there's usually a conversation with a, somebody at the front desk, and uh, there's a process for calling the, um, the ambulatory surgery center. There's about five or six different steps along the way there may be an opportunity for a right knee arthroscopy to become a left knee arthroscopy. We can all see how that would happen. A busy day, maybe this uh, front desk person has five of these operations to book. Well, if you gave the surgeon the opportunity to schedule the operation from his or her device, an iPad, an iPhone, whatever it is, we, we, we certainly have those things are ubiquitous. And the doctor and the patient are sitting there and the doctor says, I think you need to have this left knee arthroscopy. And in front of the patient, types into the OR schedule in their iPad, left knee arthroscopy, that's one step, 
with the patient there. Think about how much more likely it is that you're going to have the patient's going to show up the day of surgery and there will be the form that says left knee arthroscopy, the correct side. That's just a, a small example of how we can use technology that already exists to try and make things much more likely to go the right way and not the wrong way. Those are the kinds of things you want to incorporate into your practice. And that whole just culture principle, um, asking people, do we really have the kind of culture where people are willing to speak up to say to, to say things when, when things go wrong, or even when they almost go wrong, close calls. Many would say we should be studying close calls when things almost go wrong, because there's more of those. Uh, there's more data to look at, but you need people to be willing to point those things out. And in a culture where people don't think they're going to be punished for saying those things, you're much more likely to be able to study them. So those are those, those four elements again. And I would ask people who are who are really interested in this, the most important step you can take is to assess where you are in those four things and try and, you know, baby steps, you can't do everything all at once, try and achieve all of them and ultimately to try and get to that, that safety culture. Dr. Feldman, I'm sitting here just shaking my head at you. Yes, yes, yes. That's <laughs> so, just, I mean, really. I hope so. Yes. I, you know. <laughs> I, if you Thank could you. see me, I'm over here just nodding away. <laughs> Just great information and great tips. Um, is there anything new in patient safety that we should be aware of? For example, use of AI and EHR systems, RFI and surgery, anything like that? Right. Well, I mentioned uh, you know earlier the, the study we've just published on retained surgical items. That technology is not so new, but not everybody uses it. And I I think that's um, that's a great way of ma- uh, matching or marrying, if you will humans counting and then machines detecting to create what engineers would call depth of defense to make it less likely that that something will go wrong. There's lots of, honestly, there's lots of basic things in patient safety. The two things that I always talk about, team training and and simulation have been around for a long time, but we still have places in healthcare where those things don't exist. We've done simulation programs um, in with anesthesiologists who really were the first to uh, the patient safety table, if you will, and many of the first around simulation with ICU folks and emergency medicine physicians, uh, gynecologists and surgeons, obstetricians, all doing simulation programs. It's very interesting. When I was um, at Maimonides, I used to drive in from New Jersey every day and people would say, well, you know, do you, um, do you warm up before your operation? Many professionals warm up before their uh, their event, whether it's a musician or, or an athlete. And my warm-up was an hour on the Staten Island Expressway. You know, patients probably don't want to hear that kind of a thing. Um, instead, if we had a warm-up where you actually could do an operation on a simulator, you know, the day before, an hour before, and we did this at Maimonides, actually, a number of years ago, where uh, we gave our hospitals, including Maimonides, a simulator for, for vascular procedures so that you can actually take the patient's CAT scan, import it into the simulator, and practice doing the procedure. This was a what was called an endovascular abdominal aortic aneurysm repair. So you're repairing the a, a abdominal aorta, not through an open operation, but by uh, putting a, a stent and then a, a device in through through a vein in the in the groin. So it's a much less invasive procedure, but you can't. You're looking at this all radiologically. So imagine if you could practice on this simulator before you did the operation. And this happened, it was actually in the, in the local press. It was very cool. It's, it's one case, but I, it's the idea that this is really how to optimize how we do things. It's not all that new, but not many people are using the opportunity to actually be able to use simulation, use team training, 
And now the latest thing that we're involved with is something called an operating room black box, like an airline black box. It was sort of modeled after that, where you gather all these different inputs from the things that are in an operating room and actually study them using some AI. Um, imagine you have four hours of, of all this data from the anesthesia machine and you have cameras in the patient if it's that kind of surgery. You've got microphones, you've got temperature controls. If you really want to you know, go all in, you can have a vest that the surgeon wears and, and monitor their, their heart rate and their, their breathing and so forth. And all this gets coordinated so that you can see for every step of this operation where things either went wrong or maybe more likely almost went wrong so that you can do things to adjust them, to understand how we can make things better. That's something we've never had. I, I think it's it's really the wave of the future. You know, having cameras, there's cameras everywhere in our lives. Why don't we have them in operating rooms? And I, and I do think that most of the time, that's really a helpful thing for us to learn how we can do things better. So there's lots of opportunities for this. There's use of AI in understanding uh, radiology examinations not to eliminate radiologists, but to help them focus on the things that the humans need to do um, and so that they don't miss things that they may not be focused on. It gets back to what we talked about earlier, this idea of using systems to help humans prevent um, errors, prevent, prevent humans from making mistakes. So you need this combination of the human touch, the human uh, sense of where things need to be with a system to keep those humans from making mistakes. Completely agree. And those were some really cool ideas that you mentioned. So how do we establish patient safety as an industry-wide concern? Well, this podcast is one way we can do that, Kelly. <laughs> right? We need True. visibility. <laughs> yes. We need the ability to, uh, to get the word out, if you will. And, uh, you know, for better or for worse, things like podcasts and webinars. And, you know, unfortunately, the, the pandemic has really caused us to communicate in in different ways without being in person, but maybe that's not such a bad thing for this uh, kind of approach where you can do this through social media and, and all these uh, ways of, of getting to people quickly, right? You don't, you want to be quickest. Healthcare people don't have a lot of time. If you can get them snippets of information that they can find useful uh, and then giving, giving them the ability to, to sort of bridge the gap between the clinicians, the physicians, the nurses, and others who usually understand this and have some ideas with the administrators that run the systems and often have the purse strings so that you can really start addressing some of these things in small steps. I'm a big believer in small steps uh, that I think ultimately, as, as we said earlier, will reduce costs. Uh, it just makes sense for, for all the reasons we talked about. And uh, any parting thoughts related to our discussion? Well, I guess um, if I were to think about the main points of, of what we've talked about already, I have to always start with respect. I think it's true not just in healthcare, but everywhere. People work better if they feel like they're being treated well. Nobody likes to go to work and be treated poorly, and that includes people who work in healthcare. So all of us should really pay. And, that is, and, and don't get me wrong, that is not easy to do in a high-stress environment, and healthcare is a high-stress environment. So understanding that we're all under stress and, and avoiding the human instinct when we're, when we're under stress to to go to what we've we learned in in, uh, in college psychology fight or flight does not work in a in any situation um, <laughs> and that's our instinct so overcoming those instincts right so that would be the first thing I really focus on how we can be how we can be nicer to each other and and one of the things that I, I like to talk about when I was at Maimonides working with uh, with somebody there and quality improvement, we ask, so what is the patient see? What does the patient want, right? And the patient doesn't, they want three things. They want to get better. That's why they're in the hospital. So heal me, don't hurt me, don't make things worse and be nice to me. And those, I think those three things 
are the patient's view. And from us, from our perspective, there's the translation and how we deal with those three things, right? So make sure that we're, we're focused on quality so that we get patients better. Don't do things that are that might cause harm. So that's patient safety. And of course, the whole respect piece about being nice to people. I think that's an interesting way of thinking about how patients think that allow us to, uh, to tailor what we do when we treat patients. And then the other thing I would say is that we really, uh, as, as physicians, and I come from the malpractice world, it's, um, it's much more likely for doctors to be sued when they don't treat patients well. There's been data about that for years. Doctors are, are more likely to be sued if the patients are uh, patients who have unsolicited patient complaints about doctors. More of those predicts more lawsuits. It predicts bad outcomes. So there is a direct relationship between how we not only treat each other, but how we treat patients and lawsuits. And sometimes that's an incentive for physicians and others to, uh, to be nice to people. And then focusing on, on all the things we talked about, those four elements of patient safety, it's certainly part of our mission at the doctor's company to advance, protect, and reward the practice of good medicine. That is uh, core to what we do and why we're so interested in helping others do the same and why we're happy to help advance this mission through podcasts like this. So thank you for having me. No, it's great. I mean, I love the foundation of kindness and respect. I think we could use a little bit of that everywhere, right? Yeah, yeah. And we're just- Not so easy today. No, no, you're right. It isn't. (laughs) It's lacking in a lot of areas. Uh, But Dr. Feldman, we're so appreciative of all this fantastic information. Um, If someone wants to get in touch with you, how best can they do that? I'd be happy to uh, communicate by email. My email address is dfeldman, my first initial last name, at tdchra.com. Delighted to hear from uh, listeners with additional questions, thoughts, always looking for new ideas. I think that's the way we all get better by listening to each other. And so happy to communicate with anybody who cares to reach out. Well, it was really a delight to have you on the show. Just thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Feldman. Thanks for having me, Kelly. And we appreciate you all joining us for this episode of the Hospital Finance Podcast. Until next time. This concludes our episode of the Hospital Finance Podcast. For show notes and additional resources to help protect and optimize revenue at your hospital, visit Bessler.com forward slash podcasts. The Hospital Finance Podcast is a production of Bessler. Smart about revenue, tenacious about results.